keep your mental health muscles strong with the Emotional Badass Podcast. I'm Nikki Eisenhower, your host, psychotherapist, and life coach. The Emotional Badass Podcast is your place to learn the mental health tips and tricks you need to build emotional resilience and practice mindfulness and gratitude. Join me every week for new episodes to reach a more grounded state of well-being as life brings its challenges. Search for Emotional Badass wherever you get your podcasts. Well, hello there. I'm Nurse Mo, and this is the Straight A Nursing Podcast, where I teach nursing concepts and share tips on how to thrive in school and at the bedside. So welcome if this is your first time here. I hope you stick around for many more episodes to come. And if you are a return listener, welcome back. So today's topic is another one of those where I thought I knew what it meant for a really long time, but I really didn't. And kind of like, If you listen to the episode on digital clubbing, it's kind of like that. For me, it was anyway. So we're going to be diving into that in just a moment. Before we do that, I do want to take a very quick moment for a listener shout out. And this one goes out to Stacy, who says this. I found this podcast at the end of nursing school. I'm graduating this week, but I love using it to help me study for NCLEX. Nurse Mo has great mnemonics. They stick in my head whether I'm listening to the podcast on a run, on a bike ride, or commuting to work. Thank you, Nurse Mo. Well, I just have to say right back at you and thank you, Stacy. And I'm thrilled that you found the podcast helpful for nursing school and that you're using it to study for NCLEX. Please, please send an email when you pass your NCLEX and get your license so I can celebrate with you. All righty. Are you ready to dive into today's topic? So as I mentioned before, this is one of those topics that I honestly thought I understood when I was in nursing school because no one explained it in any kind of detail. And then I went on for a while, not really understanding it at all, and then finally dove into it because There was something that clued me into there being a bigger picture to the story. And when I dove in and really got into the pathophysiology, I found it absolutely fascinating. So I have been wanting to do this episode and cover this topic for a really, really, really long time. And here it is finally ready for you today. And so what we're talking about is orthostatic hypotension. So when I was a nursing student, all that was ever mentioned about orthostatic hypotension was that It happened after bed rest, it happened with patients who were dehydrated, and it happened with patients who were taking antihypertensive medications. Like, that's what they told me, and I accepted it, and I didn't think there was anything else to the story. There is so much more to this story, so let's dive into it. Orthostatic hypotension occurs when the body has an inadequate response to postural changes and as a result is unable to maintain a steady blood pressure when moving from a lying to a standing position. It is defined as a decrease in systolic or diastolic blood pressure that occurs within three minutes of moving from a sitting or supine position to a standing position. The parameter for orthostatic hypotension is a decrease of 20 millimeters of mercury systolic or a decrease of 10 millimeters of mercury diastolic. 
So let's talk a little bit about the physiology, what's going on here in the body. So upon standing, gravity causes a significant amount of circulating blood to shift into the lower part of the body. In an adult, this is between 300 and 800 mils. So if you think about it, if the average adult has about five liters of circulating blood volume, this represents up to 16% of total volume. That's a lot. So in normal physiology, baroreceptors in the aortic arch and the carotid sinus alert the central nervous system that blood pressure has decreased. This causes the central nervous system to trigger an increase in heart rate and systemic vasoconstriction as compensatory mechanisms to prevent blood from pooling in the lower extremities and to maintain adequate venous return. Remember, adequate venous return leads to adequate preload, which leads to adequate cardiac output. So with adequate venous return and an increase in heart rate, cardiac output should be good to go so that the organs, especially the brain, are perfused. But when these mechanisms don't work properly, the individual can have symptoms, though it is important to note that some cases of orthostatic hypotension can be asymptomatic. But for the most part, we're talking about that symptomatic person, and you'll understand why in just a moment. So symptoms include dizziness, lightheadedness, palpitations, nausea, blurred vision, and headache. Now, some people may even experience syncope, like they lose consciousness, and neck or shoulder pain, essentially from the muscles not getting adequately perfused, and even chest pain and shortness of breath. So as you can see, a lot of things are happening here that are pretty concerning. And with all of this comes a much, much higher risk for falls. So let's talk a little bit about acute versus chronic orthostatic hypotension. So orthostatic hypotension can be classified as acute or chronic. Acute orthostatic hypotension is often associated with certain medications or an acute condition that once treated no longer causes the patient to have orthostatic symptoms. Examples include dehydration, orthostatic hypotension associated with a medication, or sepsis. And then chronic orthostatic hypotension develops over a longer period of time and is often asymptomatic while it is developing. Many times, chronic orthostatic hypotension is simply a result of age-related changes such as decreased baroreflex sensitivity, decreased parasympathetic activity, decreased vasoconstriction, and increased vascular stiffness. Chronic orthostatic hypotension can also be due to impaired blood pressure regulatory mechanisms and chronic conditions that involve autonomic dysfunction. As you will see as we dive into the interventions, treating chronic orthostatic hypotension can be complex. Now there's another way to classify orthostatic hypotension, neurogenic and non-neurogenic. So neurogenic orthostatic hypotension is related to conditions that affect autonomic function, such as diabetic neuropathy and Parkinson's disease. It typically involves inadequate release of norepinephrine, which is a vasoconstrictor, in response to the drop in blood pressure, along with an inadequate increase in heart rate. 
so in these individuals, when they move position and that blood volume drops into the lower extremities, their body doesn't respond in the way that my body responds. There's an inadequate release of norepinephrine, so not the vasoconstriction that we need. It's not happening. And we also don't get an adequate heart rate increase response. That's neurogenic orthostatic hypotension. Non-neurogenic orthostatic hypotension is associated with conditions of reduced cardiac output and or impaired vascular tone that's not related to autonomic dysfunction. Some examples include vasodilation that is secondary to fever or sepsis, reduced cardiac output related to cardiac dysfunction such as aortic stenosis or heart failure and decreased circulating volume related to things like adrenal insufficiency or simple dehydration. So again, neurogenic versus non-neurogenic. Now let's talk about conditions and situations that exacerbate orthostatic hypotension. In some situations, the symptoms of orthostatic hypotension will be pronounced, and essentially this is when cardiac output is already reduced. So here are some examples. One is hot weather. In hot weather, blood vessels dilate as a way to bring the blood toward the surface of the skin, allowing it to dispel that heat to keep the body cool. Another is fluid volume deficit. Now, this could be related to decreased fluid intake. It could be from diuresis. Maybe your patient's taking a whopping dose of furosemide. And it could even be from fluid losses through diarrhea, persistent vomiting, or large wounds such as burns. It could also be from alcohol intake. Not only does alcohol have a diuretic effect, guess what it does? It causes vasodilation. And then there's prolonged standing. So standing for long periods of time can cause blood to pool in the lower extremities. Over time, this can increase pressure in the veins, causing weak valves and venous distension. This leads to the development of varicose veins and predisposes the individual to increased venous pooling. And then prolonged bed rest. The bed rest is really, really common in the clinical setting, especially with really sick or critical individuals. Studies show that it contributes significantly to cardiovascular deconditioning and impaired hormonal response to changes in blood pressure. Be very, very aware of this when getting your patient out of bed if they've been on bed rest for any length of time. When I was looking at the studies related to this, it said this can occur in as little as 20 hours of bed rest. Okay, now let's talk about something called drug-induced orthostatic hypotension. And I mentioned earlier that some drugs can cause this. And when I was a nursing student, I thought this was just one of the key ways and that there really wasn't much else to the story. It is part of the story. So one of the most common causes for acute orthostatic hypotension that you'll see a lot in the clinical setting is this drug-induced orthostatic hypotension. This generally occurs due to one or more mechanisms. So one is the medication interferes with the body's compensatory response to standing. For example, when you're standing up, right, your heart rate's going to increase, but if you're taking a medication like a beta blocker, that would prevent the heart rate from increasing. It's not going to have the compensatory response. 
Or you could have a medication that causes fluid volume losses, such as a diuretic. You could have a medication that increases or promotes venous pooling, such as nitrates, which cause vasodilation. Other common medications that contribute to orthostatic hypotension are insulin, alpha blockers, which are used for prosthetic hyperplasia, and antidepressants. So looking at insulin, insulin has a blood pressure lowering effect in some individuals. When combined with autonomic neuropathy, which is common in patients who have diabetes, this can certainly lead to orthostatic hypotension. Alpha blockers like terazosin, which is an antihypertensive technically, it's often used to treat benign prosthetic hyperplasia. It causes systemic vasodilation. And guess what? It also causes orthostatic hypotension. And then antidepressants. Orthostatic hypotension is very common with tricyclic antidepressants, but can also occur with serotonin modulators such as trazodone, among others. So the short version here is lots of medications can cause orthostatic hypotension. What about some other causes of orthostatic hypotension? In addition to drug-induced orthostatic hypotension, there are quite a bit of other circumstances that can lead to an individual experiencing a drop in blood pressure upon standing. This includes both neurogenic and non-neurogenic orthostatic hypotension, as well as some that would be considered acute versus chronic. So looking at cardiovascular issues, Patients with cardiovascular dysfunction definitely are at higher risk for orthostatic hypotension. This includes congestive heart failure, myocardial infarction, venous insufficiency, and anemia. And then there's adrenal insufficiency. Patients with adrenal insufficiency are volume depleted due to reduced mineralocorticoid function. Recall that aldosterone, which is that main mineralocorticoid, plays a key role in blood pressure regulation by influencing sodium and water balance. And then Parkinson's disease. Studies show about 20% of patients with Parkinson's disease have symptomatic orthostatic hypotension caused by inadequate norepinephrine release. This is a prime example of neurogenic orthostatic hypotension. And how about multiple sclerosis? Up to 42% of people with MS have cardiovascular autonomic dysfunction, which puts them at high risk for falls secondary to orthostatic hypotension. Again, this is classified as a type of neurogenic orthostatic hypotension, and it would be chronic and not acute. Conditions associated with decreased blood volume. Any condition that causes decreased circulating volume can cause orthostatic hypotension. Common culprits include sepsis, dehydration, severe vomiting or diarrhea, and as I mentioned before, even large surface area burns. And then we have something called postprandial orthostatic hypotension. Orthostatic hypotension after eating a meal occurs due to blood flowing to the intestines in order to facilitate digestion. So in healthy individuals, the other blood vessels in the body constrict to compensate. When this compensatory mechanism fails, which is not uncommon in older adults and those with neurogenic orthostatic hypotension, the individual experiences the drop in blood pressure. 
Emotional Badass is the weekly mental health and wellness podcast dedicated to empowering you with the emotional education so many of us crave. I'm Nikki Eisenhower, a psychotherapist with expertise in talk therapy, personal growth, and therapeutic healing. Join me every week on the Emotional Badass podcast as we delve into the heart of emotional wellness, tackling topics from stress management and coping strategies to the nuances of being highly sensitive. We navigate life's challenges, uncover the subtleties of gaslighting and manipulation, and confront narcissism head on. All the while, we learn to forge healthy boundaries that enrich both our personal and romantic relationships. With brand new content every Sunday and over 300 past episodes in our archive, there's something for everyone. Search for Emotional Badass wherever you get your podcasts. So let's talk a bit about some complications of orthostatic hypotension. The main complication is that it puts the patient at much much higher risk for falling, especially if they have an underlying condition that affects mobility or are of advanced age. Think of your patient who has Parkinson's disease, is 83 years old, and has orthostatic hypotension. I'm going to be on super mega psychic level nurse watching out for falls, threat level midnight kind of situation with a patient like that, right? So again, very high risk for falling. Other potential complications of orthostatic hypotension are concussion and subdural hematoma because of falling. Head injuries are really, really common with falls, especially in the elderly. If your patient is elderly or taking an anticoagulant, which many are, be aware that subdural hematomas can occur if they hit their head and they don't even have to hit their head that hard. In fact, falls are the most common reason for subdural hematoma in the elderly. Another complication is bone fractures. Fractures associated with falls can occur anywhere in the body, though common sites are the hip, knee, ankle, wrist, arm, and shoulder. These are fractures associated with the fall. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, more than 95% of hip fractures are caused by falls. There's also stroke and TIA. The decrease in cerebral perfusion pressure can increase the risk of stroke and transient ischemic attacks, especially in patients who have lower blood pressure at baseline. And then heart disease. Though the exact causative role is not fully understood, studies show that fluctuating blood pressure plays a role in the pathogenesis of cardiovascular disease and is recognized as a risk factor for heart failure. So lots of complications from orthostatic hypotension. For the most part, in the acute clinical setting, it's going to be falls and the things that can happen because of a fall. So how is orthostatic hypotension diagnosed? So the simple way that it is often diagnosed is by essentially taking heart rate and blood pressure measurements in the lying and standing positions. To assess a patient for orthostatic hypotension, simply follow these steps. So step number one, have the patient assume a supine position for at least five minutes. Measure their heart rate and their blood pressure in this position. Then. You want to have the patient stand up. Be ready for orthostatic hypotension to occur just in case so that the patient doesn't fall. You want to be there to help them assist them back to a seated position if they're about to fall. 
After about one minute in that standing position, measure the heart rate and blood pressure again. Wait another two minutes. So now we're at the three minute mark. Measure heart rate and blood pressure again. And then you compare the standing measurements against the supine measurement. If there's an increase of 20 millimeters of mercury or more in the systolic pressure or an increase of 10 millimeters of mercury or more in the diastolic pressure, this is indicative of orthostatic hypotension with or without symptoms. Diagnosis may also be conducted via a tilt table test. So in this diagnostic procedure, the patient is exposed to orthostatic stress by tilting the table into the upright position. For some examinations, the response may be intentionally exaggerated with the use of medication. So during this procedure, the patient's heart rate, oxygen saturation level, and ECG tracing are continuously monitored. Blood pressure is obviously also closely monitored, and while continuous non-invasive monitoring is preferred, it may not be available. In these cases, cuff blood pressure measurements may be used at regular intervals. So in addition to measuring vital signs, the patient will be observed for signs that are having orthostatic hypotension, things like syncope, sweating, any outward sign that they could be experiencing this. Additionally, they'll be instructed to tell the examiner if they feel any symptoms such as lightheadedness, blurred vision, nausea, or palpitations. Now, if the patient has no symptoms, so essentially what they do is the patient is supine for about at least five minutes or so, and then they tilt the table upright. And if the patient has no symptoms after about 45 minutes in the upright position, they may want to try to provoke a response with a, with a medication. Commonly used medications for this are nitroglycerin and isoproterenol. So the upright tilt is abandoned. If the patient's blood pressure drops below a certain threshold, usually 70 millimeters of mercury, but this could vary from patient to patient, or if the patient has a syncopal episode. Additionally, some patients will require a fluid bolus to reverse hypotension even after resuming that supine position. Though a tilt table test is generally considered to be a safe procedure, the patient could have hypotension and even weakness that persists for several hours. So how do we treat orthostatic hypotension and how do we reduce risk for things like falls? So the management of chronic orthostatic hypotension can be pretty complex. One approach is to utilize an A to F mnemonic, which provides several options for patients to try in coordination with their medical providers. And this is not a stepwise thing where you do A before you do B before you do C. It's just a way to remember all of the different interventions. So A stands for abdominal binder. Wearing an abdominal binder when out of bed can help patients with autonomic dysfunction retain adequate blood pressure. The binder works by reducing splanchnic venous pooling and making more blood volume available for circulation. And then there are two for B. One is bed up position. So studies have shown that sleeping with the head of the bed slightly elevated by about four inches can help with orthostatic hypotension. Now it's thought that over time, this slightly upward tilting position retrains the body's sensors and gradually increases vascular tone to lessen incidences of orthostatic hypotension. 
Additionally, the slight upward tilt helps reduce nocturnal hypertension and diuresis. So the body holds onto fluids, which is beneficial when the patient stands up in the morning. Another B is bolus. Drinking 16 ounces or two glasses of water prior to prolonged standing can help an individual experience less orthostatic stress and can increase blood pressure by up to 20 millimeters of mercury for up to two hours. C stands for counter maneuvers. Contracting the muscles of the lower body can help improve venous return and thereby improve cardiac output. It has also been shown that clenching the hands into fists prior to and upon standing can also help increase blood pressure and decrease orthostatic hypotension. I love the way countermaneuvers sounds like. It's like it's like one of those spy movies, like a Jason Bourne movie. All right, then D is for drugs. Pharmacologic treatment of orthostatic hypotension may be necessary in some cases. I'll talk more about the drugs in just a moment. E is for exercise. Individuals with orthostatic hypotension and especially elderly individuals who have suffered a fall in the past may feel pretty tentative about increasing their activity because they're afraid they're going to fall. Encourage the patient to exercise as it's a really important component in venous return and preservation of vascular tone. Beneficial exercises that don't necessarily increase fall risk the way maybe walking might include recumbent cycling, swimming, and lifting light weights. There's another E here, and that's education. You want to ensure the patient understands factors that put them at risk for orthostatic hypotension and, of course, to change positions slowly, especially upon waking. It's also really important to teach them techniques for improving their blood pressure, such as the ones I've mentioned so far, drinking the water bolus and doing the countermeasures. And of course, make sure the patient knows the symptoms of orthostatic hypotension so they can recognize it quickly and hopefully reseat themselves and avoid a fall. And then F is for fluids and salt. Many patients with orthostatic hypotension benefit from increased fluids and salt in order to have optimal fluid balance. For some patients, this might just mean adding extra salt to their foods, but some may need to take a salt tablet. So again, that was the A to F mnemonic, abdominal binder, bed up position, water bolus, counter maneuvers, drugs, exercise, education, and then fluids and salt. Some general interventions for all patients with orthostatic hypotension also includes trying to identify the underlying cause and addressing that when able. For example, if the orthostatic hypotension is related to anemia, the patient may need a hematopoietic agent such as a poetin alpha or even a blood transfusion. You're going to always teach your patients to change positions slowly, to use assistive devices such as a walker, or to call for help prior to getting out of bed. And this can vary from patient to patient. Your main goal is to prevent falls. Now, compression stockings can improve venous return, especially in individuals who stand for long periods of time. However, a 2015 study showed that an abdominal binder is more beneficial, so that may actually be tried first. Patients should also avoid drinking alcohol, which acts as a vasodilator and a diuretic, And for patients who experience postprandial orthostatic hypotension, limiting high-carbohydrate meals can help reduce symptoms. 
Additionally, small frequent meals are preferred, while hot foods and beverages may also need to be avoided. In severe cases, the medication octreotide could be used to reduce the amount of blood flowing to the intestines. Now let's dive into some pharmacology for orthostatic hypotension. So midadrine is a vasopressor that activates alpha-1 adrenergic receptors on both the arterial and venous side. The result is increased vascular tone and increased blood pressure. It's typically taken three times per day, with the first dose being taken soon after getting out of bed in the morning and the last dose taken at least four hours before bed so as not to cause nocturnal hypertension. One bothersome effect of midadrine is urinary frequency. Next is the drug fludrocortisone. Fludrocortisone is a mineralocorticoid often used in cases of adrenal insufficiency. For orthostatic hypotension, it is used to help the body retain sodium and adequate circulating plasma volume. Remember, water follows salt. If we hold on to sodium, we hold on to water. Because it also causes potassium excretion, though, patients may need to be advised to consume high-potassium foods or even take a potassium supplement. Note that fludrocortisone can cause significant supine hypertension. Another medication is pyridostigmine, which is a cholinesterase inhibitor that prevents the breakdown of acetylcholine. In orthostatic hypotension, it is used to improve neurotransmission in the baroreflex pathway. It is typically used in patients with only mild to moderate orthostatic hypotension as its effects as a vasopressor are not that significant. It may also be used in conjunction with midadrine. Adverse effects of pyridostigmine are cholinergic in nature and include bradycardia, diarrhea, abdominal cramps, nausea and vomiting, excessive sweating, and excessive salivation. Another medication is droxydopa. Droxydopa is an adrenergic agent that causes peripheral vasoconstriction to increase blood pressure. Serious cardiovascular adverse effects include heart failure, myocardial ischemia, and arrhythmias. Earlier, I mentioned hematopoietic agents. If the cause of orthostatic hypotension is reduced circulating volume related to anemia, then increasing red blood cells may help. A common medication used for this purpose is epoetin alpha, which goes by brand names Epigen and Procrit. And then Desmopressin. Synthetic vasopressin may be used to decrease nocturia, which can help mitigate morning orthostatic hypotension. So in summary, orthostatic hypotension can be related to a wide variety of clinical conditions and underlying disorders, not like what I learned in nursing school, but so much more. The biggest risk to your patients is falling. So instruct them to change positions from a supine or seated position to an upright position slowly and to call for assistance before getting out of bed. I hope this helps you understand orthostatic hypotension and you might be thinking about POTS syndrome because it is somewhat related. If you're interested in learning more about postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, then go and listen to episode 239. All right, usually I know what I'm going to be talking about next week so that I can convince you to come back and spend some more time with me, but I haven't actually decided yet, so it's going to be a surprise. I hope to see you then. Bye for now. 
This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing. Keep your mental health muscles strong with the Emotional Badass Podcast. I'm Nikki Eisenhower, your host, psychotherapist, and life coach. The Emotional Badass Podcast is your place to learn the mental health tips and tricks you need to build emotional resilience and practice mindfulness and gratitude. Join me every week for new episodes to reach a more grounded state of well-being as life brings its challenges. Search for Emotional Badass wherever you get your podcasts.